Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Emily Corwin. It was 1976. Bill Russell was 30 years old, and he was two years into his job as legislative counsel for the Vermont legislature, which basically means he was the legislature's lawyer. That's when he got an interesting assignment. I had just started. This was one of the earliest assignments, was the impeachment of the sheriff. Uh, What am I doing trying to impeach the sheriff? (laughs) This would be the first impeachment in Vermont's history. There was no precedent. We had to decide how the legislature would function. But we did have a model, the the one for Nixon. (laughs) The central question at this point is simply put, what did the president know and when did he know it? I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And we had just been treated to an impeachment proceeding on the national level, and everybody was full of pizzazz. Of course, Russell is referring to Watergate, which had been three years earlier. And now, in central Vermont, an elected official, a county sheriff, was accused of abusing his office. Mike Mayo was a sheriff of Washington County, and uh, he was um, accused of misbehaving in bars and restaurants and sort of swaggering around with his power and threatening people. Sheriff Mike Mayo was also accused of planting evidence and falsifying documents. The Vermont Attorney General's office was worried. And um, they uh, must have come to the conclusion that there was no real way to regulate or to oversee the power of the sheriffs. The only way to hold Mayo accountable, the Attorney General told Vermont lawmakers, would be to impeach him. I remember Edgar May, a member of the committee, said, what are we doing riding into town to impeach the sheriff? (laughs) This is crazy. to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. This month... Hi, my name is Patrick Warren, and I live in Georgia, Vermont. A question about accountability for an elected position that doesn't get too much attention. What part of government oversees elected sheriffs in Vermont, and are they as autonomous as they seem? You might not be clued into the fact that we even have elected sheriffs, but we do. One for each of Vermont's 14 counties. They have a four-year term and jurisdiction across the entire state. So what Patrick wanted to know is, who exactly is keeping an eye on these sheriffs? We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State.
Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. We're going to pick back up with the story of Sheriff Mike Mayo and his impeachment proceedings later on. For now, let's get to know our question asker, Patrick. Well, one thing is like, you know, only about a quarter of the people vote. And the other thing of the quarter of the people to vote, I would be willing to bet that most of them, Sheriff is just one of those names on the bottom of the ballot. I talked to Patrick over Skype. Well, as long as there's at least one name there, they'll check it off and they don't really know much about what's going on with their sheriff. You can probably relate to this. I certainly can. And Patrick's whole thing is, if Vermont's county sheriffs are fundamentally accountable to their voters, but most of their voters don't pay much attention to them, what happens when they do something wrong? What you should know about Patrick is that he's basically the platonic ideal of a question asker. He signs all his emails, wondering what it all means, Patrick. And he takes civics and civic duty seriously. In his free time, he volunteers as a guardian ad litem. This means he advocates for children who get taken into state custody. Um, So I spent a lot of time down at the courthouse. This is the district court in St. Albans. Patrick often interacts with the sheriff's deputy, which he says is always pleasant. Um, He searches me when I go in (laughs) and we talk about what's going on in the world and usually gives me a lollipop or a lifesaver. (laughs) I don't really have any acts to grind about any particular sheriff in general. It's just sort of like the concept. I'm curious about how or is it that we're keeping the, the sheriffs responsible. Right. Patrick's question is totally theoretical. We're not assessing how good or bad Vermont's current sheriffs actually are in this episode, but rather how the system of oversight works. But first, if you're not sure what Vermont's county sheriffs even do, you're not alone. You know, I think out of all of the law enforcement groups out there in the state that this is the probably the least understood. I don't think there's a lot of legislators that completely understand how we work. That's Roger Marcoux. He's been the Lamoille County Sheriff for 17 years. And he talked to my colleague, Emily Corwin. How can I help you? Oh, hi. I'm with uh, Vermont Public Radio. I have an interview with the sheriff. I met up with Sheriff Marcoux at his offices in Hyde Park. Okay, I'll let him know you're here. Thank you. Our question asker, Patrick, joined us. Hi. Hi. Patrick. Roger Marcoux, how are you? Hello. Hello, Emily. Glad to meet you, too. And a shout-out to Sheriff Marcoux here. He welcomed us to his office and then answered every question we could think to ask, however um, elementary or uncomfortable. Wait, what? Patrick got us started. How do sheriffs work and, and who are they accountable to? Well, uh, uh, Vermont Sheriff is a very, very interesting uh, um, office. So essentially, uh, the sheriff is a county law enforcement officer. So, so the state has state police, towns, if they choose, can hire their own municipal police departments. And every county in Vermont has a sheriff's department. 
And these sheriffs have two primary responsibilities, which they get funding from the state to take care of. Here uh, in Vermont, the sheriffs have to uh, assist the courts and everything with the transportation of prisoners to and from court. And they have to serve civil process. Number one, they transport inmates to court. And number two, they deliver summons. So those are the two mandated um, functions that sheriffs do. So can anyone be a sheriff? The answer is kind of yeah. Because you don't have to be a certified law enforcement officer in order to be a sheriff. It's rare, but you can get elected sheriff and choose not to get certified. In that case, you would perform just an administrative role. Um, how tight are your races for sheriff here? I mean, how often is there someone else on the ballot? There's uh, someone else on the ballot the first year I ran in 2002, and I haven't had any opposition since then. The races aren't very competitive. In the last two election cycles, less than half of sheriff's elections were contested at all. Is there a different way that a person approaches that job being I'm a professional police officer or I'm an elected official, do you have to do things differently because you do have an election coming up? It's uh, that old three-legged stool that you hear used for different things. You partly have to be a good businessman person because you've got to find the money to keep your operation going because there's no money coming from the state, basically. And then you've got to be a good politician. You've got to learn. You've got to be a people person if you're going to survive. And then the third one is you've got to know something about law enforcement. That's right. Marku lists business first and law enforcement last. At one point, I asked him what his salary is. While sheriffs get about $80,000 a year from the state, he told me last year he took home $150,000. By statute, each sheriff is allowed to have contracts you know, with law, uh, law enforcement type functions. Sheriffs can take home up to 5% of every contract they bring into their department. As a sheriff, the more enterprising you are, the more money you make. Marcou showed us a 24-7 emergency dispatch center he runs out of his department offices. It brings in $800,000 a year from towns who rely on it. His department also contracts with the Department of Mental Health and Child and Family Services. Marcou is proud of the way his department serves the community. But he adds, good sheriffs have to be scrupulous. You know, it's always sort of dangerous because uh, when there's a lot of money coming around, there's, there's chances of it being, you know, mishandled or, or what have you because different people have different levels of business acumen. So uh, so you want to make sure that you cover all your bases so that, that you know, that, that it's very obvious there's no corruption going on or anything like that. We're going to hear about what happened when there was financial corruption in a sheriff's department in Wyndham County. But first, let's go back to 1976, to the story of that sheriff, Sheriff Mike Mayo, that we heard about at the top of the episode. Back then, the answer to the question of who oversees Vermont sheriffs was the legislature, with impeachment. Emily Corwin picks it back up here. We left off with Bill Russell, a young lawyer back then who was working for the legislature. Nobody had done this before, so we, we were the first. His job was to assemble the case against Mayo. I was like the prosecuting attorney at the time. Allegedly, Mayo was flaunting his badge and his gun, threatening people in local bars. He was even charged with assaulting someone. And then later, Mayo's deputy said Mayo told him to plant marijuana in the assault victim's car. 
There were also allegations Mayo falsified documents and instructed his deputies basically not to do their jobs. I was told that they were talking impeachment. This is Mike Mayo. He remembers the day he learned the House Judiciary Committee had voted to impeach him. He was driving back to Montpelier from Waitsfield when his office called. They radioed and told me that I had been impeached and that I was going to go before the Senate. The Senate would hold a trial. They would look at the evidence for each article of impeachment. And if the senators found Mayo guilty, they could remove him from office. But here's the thing. The lawmakers who were involved in this process and Bill Russell, the legislature's attorney, none of them were experienced doing trials. Some of them were lawyers, but they weren't prosecutors. I had worked for Congress for for a while, but uh, I uh, had never been in a courtroom. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mayo was going to be represented by two attorneys from the state's most renowned law firm. I had the two best lawyers in the state of Vermont, and the state had some of the worst ones. The hearings were front-page news from Boston to Burlington. The balcony was crowded with reporters, but the process, especially at first, it was chaos. So you stood up and you faced the Senate, and the 30 senators at that time were considered the judges. And of course, you got the people in the balcony and the press. Rusty Giacomo was one of Mayo's defense lawyers. He remembers being shocked at the omissions of the prosecution. He says they lacked a coherent strategy, they hardly interviewed witnesses, and during his cross-examinations, he says one senator would object, then another would object to that objection. And all of a sudden you have a 10-minute discussion amongst the senators as to whether or not the next question you've asked should be answered or not. It kind of just destroys the whole thing you've been trying to do. There were three articles of impeachment. The first two turned out to be pretty weak. They were based almost entirely on the testimony of a couple of sheriff's deputies, people who had worked for Mayo, whose credibility, Valson Giacomo says, became questionable. I think they got caught up in some things that were legitimate gripes or observations to make, but they just went wild with it. And then when they started having to face cross-examination, they started saying, uh-oh, this isn't a little fun, fun and games. The Senate voted to acquit Mayo on the first two articles. It was the third article, which Velson Giacomo thought would be the toughest. You could tell the oh, a tremendous change in their attitudes when it came to the third article. He recalls a bar owner testifying that Mayo had been coming in with his badge and his gun, threatening patrons, even assaulting one. They literally got PO'd at the sheriff. And I think they just shook their heads like, whoa. If Mayo was going to be convicted, this would be his downfall. But Bill Russell, the lawyer for the legislature, remembers even this decision was muddled. It wasn't always clear what what we were deciding when we made a decision as to whether or not we were deciding that the facts were true or whether we were deciding that they would be an impeachable offense. The vote was close on this last article. But even when it came to roughing up patrons at bars, the Senate voted not guilty. So he was acquitted in the Senate, and that in summary is uh, the story of uh, the, the Mayo impeachment. I wasn't worried about it because I didn't do anything wrong. That's Mayo. But even his own defense attorney, Rusty Valson Giacomo, wondered if the acquittal had more to do with a fear that conviction would lead to more impeachments. 
I think that some of them were looking back on all this and saying to themselves, we don't want to do this in the future. <laughs> solve it in the ballot box or solve it in the criminal law or whatever or lawsuits. This is not why we're senators. The trial took three and a half weeks, weeks when lawmakers could have been making laws. And then ultimately, the state had to pay for Mayo's lawyers, tens of thousands of dollars. As Bill Russell says, it was a learning curve. Now we know better, or we could do it better, if, if that's, maybe it's better not to do it at all. <laughs> Impeachment, he says, should be saved for only the most egregious of offenses. Two years later, Sheriff Mike Mayo was voted out of office. Since then, some less elaborate measures have been put in place to hold sheriffs accountable. This is the second part of the answer to Patrick's question. In 1993, lawmakers began requiring all county sheriff's offices to have a financial audit every two years. Mostly, the audits are used to make sure sheriffs have good record keeping and also keep their departments in the black. But over time, they've also become a way to detect when something has gone awry. That's one of the best mechanisms so that there is something that financially uh, is not right. Uh, we have an opportunity to, to find out about that. This is Randy Brock. Today, he sits in the Vermont Senate. But back in 2006, Brock was state auditor when he got a tip. The auditor's office received an anonymous letter that uh, suggested that there were some things at uh, the Wyndham County Sheriff's Department that weren't right. The county sheriff at the time was a woman named Sheila Prue. If Brock knows who sent the tip, he won't tell me. The letter, he says, alleged a variety of misconduct uh, involving money, involving the use of uh, equipment, automobiles, and so on. Brock began to investigate. And eventually, we collected boxes and boxes of records. Uh, we collected every financial record that we could find in the department and then proceeded to begin analyzing them. Credit card receipts, payroll, accounting, gas cards. Brock and his team dug through it all. They had the jurisdiction to do this because of that law from 1993, which requires sheriff's departments to be audited every two years. By the time Brock got the anonymous letter, Sheila Pru's department was the only one of 14 departments across the state which hadn't conducted its audit for the previous year. As Brock's fraud investigators went through the boxes, they kept finding credit card receipts that didn't make any sense. Why? would a sheriff's department that does not have a canine unit be buying pet food and pet beds and pet supplies. There were purchases for underwear and clothing, handwritten checks Sheila Prue had made out to herself. Uh, there were cell phones that were issued uh, to the sheriff's domestic partner and, and the sheriff's uh, child. All told, Brock concluded Prue had misused more than $60,000. He published the details in a report and sent that to the attorney general's office, to the feds, to the sheriff's association. And of course, it got picked up by the press. I was astonished. Bob Audet had been a reporter with the Brattleboro Reformer for maybe a year when he got a hold of Brock's report outlining the allegations. The few interactions I had with Sheila, I never would have thought that she was doing this. There were purchases for crazy stuff like books for banjos for beginners and cotton underwear. I should say, we wanted to talk to Sheila Prue herself about all this, and we did reach out to her attorney a few times, but she didn't call back. I think people were just stunned at the 
audacity or the I mean once it all came out it was like there was it was almost the incompetence was the incompetence at even covering up the embezzlement even after the report hit the press and even after lawmakers asked her to Prue refused to resign not even the state auditor could make Prue step aside again Randy Brock Well, we suggested that she recuse herself from the financial operations of the department until such time as the ship could be righted, Uh, and uh, she declined to do that. Eventually, the state charged Prue with a handful of crimes. Audette and others covered the case. There was felony-level embezzlement and two misdemeanors. Now, the courts can't force an elected sheriff to resign. According to Vermont statute, a sheriff can return to office even after going to jail. But the attorney general's office offered Prue a pretty sweet deal. If she pleaded guilty, agreed to resign, and paid the county back $36,000, she could have her felony record expunged. And Prue agreed. She put down $10,000 toward her restitution. She resigned. She pleaded guilty. And then the story took a bizarre turn. You know, there was rumors about who made the donation. I, I was never able to track it down. Bob Audet, the reporter, says an anonymous donor paid the remaining $26,000. The donation, too, was like, what? How? Well, that's really nice of someone, but they do know that she stole the money, right? I mean, that's what embezzlement is. And she pleaded guilty. After the donation, Prue's felonies were erased from the court record. Like, literally. If you look at the first charge in her court file, count one is just a blank page. Even state auditor Randy Brock told me he couldn't talk about what happened after he submitted the audit report. To the state, the felony never happened. Prue never did any time. But with her resignation, the county could move on. The Brattleboro police chief took over in the interim. And the following year, Keith Clark, the Bellows Falls police chief, was elected Wyndham County Sheriff. Eleven years on, Clark is still in office. So, at this point, we've seen two examples of accountability for Vermont sheriffs. An impeachment proceeding that ended in an acquittal, and an audit that ended in a resignation. But what if you're just a regular citizen with a complaint? This is what our question asker Patrick asked Sheriff Marcou when they met up. If you weren't such a good guy, because <laughs> and I've got a problem with the sheriff's department, and I go through, I get up to you, you know, I want to see the budget, and you won't show me the budget, or the deputy keeps driving over my flowers when he parks on the side of the road in front of my house trying to catch speeders or something like that. And I don't feel that I've got satisfaction on the issue from you. What's the process? Who do I go to to say, hey, you know, the sheriff's not doing the right thing. We need to make the sheriff do the right thing. Other than, like, supporting your opponent in the next election, what what do I do? Okay. So here in this department, we have um, um, uh, citizen complaint forms for them to fill out. And every complaint is is investigated. And the more serious the complaint, well, if it's your deputy was rude or something like that, we'll do it through the chain of command here. We've got a captain, a lieutenant, and, and what have you. If it's criminal in nature, it automatically, or I will ask the state police to investigate it. If it's not criminal in nature, but, you know, pretty serious, I have 
probably for the last two or three years hired a private investigator, a former state trooper, to investigate the case. So, sorry to interrupt. So again, you say that you have. That sounds like it's a you as sheriff policy, not a statute or a... So, so that's the way it is. There's nothing you can do unless you get some kind of impeachable offense. With law enforcement, if I was arrested for domestic violence and couldn't carry a firearm and, and you know, it, it's still pretty difficult to move an elected official out of office. So it all gets taken care of at the next election. They're as autonomous as any elected official, any county elected official, and there's no state agency that regulates them per se. This is Richard Gothier, and it's notable that he's saying this because he's the executive director of quite possibly the closest you can get to a state agency that oversees sheriffs. It's called the Vermont Criminal Justice Training Council. The council runs the Vermont Police Academy, and it certifies all law enforcement officers in the state, including sheriffs who go for certification. And it can take those certifications away. Everybody who has certification in Vermont is subject to losing their certification, having it revoked by the council under or for certain violations. This has been the law since 1991. And Gothier says there's a very short list of reasons for which any officer can have their certification suspended or revoked. Essentially, right now, it's for a conviction of a felony or failure to get your annual number of training hours to maintain your certification. That's it right now. That's it right now. But thanks to legislation passed just last year, starting in July, that list is going to get much longer. We're actually talking about three categories. In the first category... One category that now includes misdemeanors in addition to felonies. So that domestic assault example that Sheriff Marcoux gave Patrick could have consequences come July. There's another category for things like misreporting training hours. And then... The more interesting um, and sort of more groundbreaking category is this gross professional misconduct. Leah Ernst is a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont, which helped push for this change. She says gross professional misconduct could mean sexual harassment, particularly involving physical contact or misuse of position. Um, excessive use of force, using your position as a law enforcement officer for personal gain, biased policing. That was a major victory to get that in here. But it's important to stress that these are just examples. It's not um, the end-all, be-all, and, and nothing else can fall under it, which I think makes this more forward-looking rather than just, here's the things we can think of that would be really bad. And if I may, it's, it's important to stress also that this is something that the law enforcement community was asking for, too. We, uh, a number of us, were engaged in the struggle to get this for over five years. It's a very big deal. Were there instances in the past where you were looking at um, a complaint against a particular officer and really felt hamstrung by the sort of existing rules? Yes. <laughs> that's the that's short answer. I think um, we can anticipate that the expanded grounds for decertification will result in, ex in an increased number of decertifications. And this year, legislation has been introduced to transfer this whole process over to a non-law enforcement agency called the Office of Professional Regulation. So cops wouldn't be in charge of disciplining other cops. 
But as of now, that legislation hasn't been passed. Either way, though, here's the catch. Remember how we said earlier that you don't actually have to be a certified law enforcement officer to serve as a sheriff? That means technically, come July, a county sheriff could commit a crime or discriminate or sexually harass someone, and this sheriff could lose his or her certification and still serve as sheriff. It would just be in an administrative capacity. Still, Leah Ernst of the Vermont ACLU says that concerned citizens should feel empowered to call out bad behavior. I think people often feel that they don't have anywhere to turn, so it's important that people know there are options besides just, you know, voting in the two, three, four-year-later election. Ernst says you actually have a bunch of options besides complaining to an agency or the training council. You can go to the Vermont Human Rights Commission for discrimination issues. You can take advantage of the Public Records Act. You can request police reports. You can request dash cam footage, body cam footage. Of course, Ernst gets in a little plug for her own organization. You can always make a complaint to your friendly ACLU of Vermont. Um, We get lots of complaints about law enforcement conduct, and we can, in appropriate circumstances, get involved. And then she points out something that almost everyone we spoke to really emphasized. There's the friends in in the press. Um, It's important to shed light on misconduct. The free press is a fundamental cornerstone of holding government's feet to the fire and holding government officials accountable. The press. That's us. And yes, we recognize this is getting a little self-serving. But it's true. Journalists do work to hold the powerful to account. Where I think that public officials are really, really, uh, where they have a lot of concerns what they're reading about themselves in the press. Sheriff Roger Marcoux talked about this as well. I take calls from the press, whether it's a good thing or not, uh, that I've got to deal with because I figure if word gets out there that I'm taking this job for granted, I figure I'm not going to get elected next time around. Sheriffs are, are in the public eye and the public is probably one of the best controls that there is. Randy Brock uncovered Sheriff Sheila Prue's embezzlement thanks to a whistleblower. So he recognizes the power of raising your voice. Because when citizens, when people see something that they don't think is right, generally there are a lot of people who aren't shy about telling others about it. Now they might not write an anonymous letter, but what they might do is uh, a letter to the press, uh, phone calls to their legislature, and so on. And Bob Audette, who reported on the Prue case, obviously agrees. Whoever inside the sheriff's office spilled the beans to whoever that is, if they're listening, they, uh, they deserve a big shout out and a thank you. So in the parlance of this show, be brave, speak up. much for listening to the show this month. Emily Corwin reported this episode with me. If you want the show to answer your question about Vermont, head to bravelittlestate.org to share your curiosity. While you're there, you can vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from Long Trail Brewing Company and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Our editor is Lynn McRae and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Music selection this month by Liam Elder Connors and engineering support from Chris Albertine. Also a special thanks to Howard Weiss-Tisman and Peter Hirschfeld. I'm Angela Evansy. 
We'll be back next month. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.